Welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm John Tanza in Washington working on this program, The Remote. Here are some of the top stories making news across South Sudan and Sudan this Wednesday, November 16, 2022. The UN mission in South Sudan says violence against civilians has reduced in the country. We do note that gross violations and abuses of human rights and international humanitarian law remain a widespread concern across the country. And some South Sudanese refugees in Sudan are calling on the country's leaders to visit refugee camps in Khartoum. We know that government officials usually come here, but they don't want to meet with us. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. The United Nations mission in South Sudan says it has registered a 60% decrease in violent incidents against civilians across parts of the country this year. But the spokesperson for UNMIS says human rights abuses and violations of international humanitarian law in the country remains a concern. For VOA News, Wake Simon Wood reports from Juba. Between July and September of this year, the Human Rights Division at the UN Peacekeeping Mission in South Sudan registered 142 incidents of violence, a substantial reduction from the 351 incidents documented during the same period last year. The UNIMIS quarterly report says the 142 incidents, however, affected 745 people across various parts of the country, while the number of incidents of violence has dropped compared to the same time last year. The report says 285 people were killed as a result of violence and 92 others subjected to sexual violence. Unimis spokesperson Linda Tom says the decrease is attributed to a decline in civilian casualties in the equatorial region. Upper Nile and Warab states were most affected by the violence, accounting for more than half of victims recorded during the period. Conventional parties to the conflict were responsible for the majority of civilian casualties in the reporting period. UNIMIS says there is a 25% decrease in violent incidents compared to the previous reporting period of April to June. In that period, the mission recorded 188 violent incidents, which affected 922 civilians. Tom says while UNIMIS is encouraged by the decrease in violence affecting civilians, the mission is concerned about continuing rights abuses. We do note that gross violations and abuses of human rights and international humanitarian law remain a widespread concern across the country. UNIMIS also documented 92 victims of sexual violence, including 20 reps. It says at least 47% of the alleged perpetrators of sexual gender-based violence were family members, fellow community members, or neighbors of the victims. UNIMIS says the situation of sexual and gender-based violence calls for more protection in the family and community settings where they remain vulnerable due to lower status of women and girls in South Sudanese society exacerbated by harmful traditional practices. UNIMIS says a number of state actors are responsible for the acts of violence.
They include the South Sudan People's Defense Force, SPLIO forces, and other opposition groups, as well as rebel groups like the National Salvation Front. SPLIO spokesperson Colonel Lampol Gabriel says his party's forces were not involved in any violence against the civilians. This report of enemies is a little bit misplaced because we don't know who is fighting who in the upper line. They need to make proper investigation to make sure they know exactly who is attacking who. Suba Samuel, the NASA spokesperson, also denied accusations in the Unimis report. Efforts to reach SSPDF spokesperson Major General Lul Rui Kuang for comment were unsuccessful as his non phone lines were not going through. Tom says UNIMIS has called on South Sudan's unity government to implement the roadmap of the peace deal as a way forward to address the problem. UNIMIS reiterates its call to the government of the Republic of South Sudan to fulfill all of its obligations, including upholding the human rights of all South Sudanese. The report says Upper Nile continue to remain in a fragile and unpredictable situation due to the conflict that broke out between between SPLIO forces and its splinter groups. For VN News, I'm working Simon Wudu in Juba. Still on United Nations, residents and leaders from the ABA Special Administrative Area are welcoming a decision by the United Nations Security Council to extend the mandate of the United Nations Interim Security Force for ABA. Some leaders from the region say the peacekeeping force should do more. For VOA News, Mayang David Mayar reports from Juba. On Monday, the UN Security Council unanimously extended the mandate of UNESCO for another one year until November 15, 2023. The 3,890 strong peacekeeping force comprised of military and police personnel was established in June 2011 and is mandated to provide security in what is supposed to be the demilitarized region known as the Abia Administrative Area. Numerous deadly attacks have been reported in the region in recent months. Ajak Ding, a spokesperson for the Abia Special Administrative Area, says his government welcomes the decision to extend the peacekeeping mission's mandate but Deng is urging UNESCO to push for the final status of ABA. The extension is welcome, but we hope within this time, process of final status of ABA to be achieved. Uh, UNESCO forces uh, is not well covering the box. And uh, so the mandate is not to that extent, uh, as the citizens are respecting. So uh, we aid them again uh, with this extension now to to live up to their uh, mandate so that they can do their perfect protection within the box. South Sudan and Sudan both claim ownership of the Abia region, which straddles the border between the two countries. In June 2011, both governments agreed to offer a demilitarized special administrative status for ABA, allowing UNESCO to provide security in the area.
Deng says the region is encountering several security challenges due to a lack of military presence and accuses UNESCO of providing very little security to the local population. Deng says declaring a final status for a BA will end the waves of attacks in the area. Because uh, people are harmless here and the, 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 the time of the conflict uh, is again uh, disturbing the very little citizen who has uh, settled, who have got some security. And now with this one, they are not able to do their livelihood. And that is why the, the UNESCO was brought in here. Deng says the south and the north of the Abia administrative area are witnessing some of the worst threats of insecurity in the region, which destabilizes the livelihoods of people in local communities. Bionkwal, a native of Abia living in Juba, whose father was killed in front of UNESCO forces, says the peacekeeping force has not lived up to their mandate for the past few years. It's okay to, to have been extended the mandate of the UNESCO. However, uh, we, we, we have some missing gaps uh, regarding the presence of UNESCO within a very special administrative area. The security situation at the area is really, really devastating. Uh, we, we have uh, experienced this, uh, destruction of properties, displacement of people, and worst of all, series of death of both group of people or individuals such as my father. He was killed in the presence of UNESCO. With the new extension of the UNESCO mandate, Kual calls on UNESCO to protect innocent and armed civilians in Abia so that when people like his father are threatened, they are protected. If they have been given another chance for extension, then it is now time for them to put more effort and at least go on the reality now to implement the mandate, which is the security. Because a BA area, okay, it's, it's a box, it's a defined area, and of course they must, the whole box must be secured, and people should be at peace. We experience some development like other people in the world. Raj Adur, another Abia citizen living in Juba, says many armed forces remain in the Abia who are not peacekeeping forces. Until now, there are huge number of, of military personnel since 2011 remains within the PCA block in the area, and it is the forces that that is being threatening the population of Abia since 2011. The people of Abia would, would, would love to see a new phase of a new beginning of a new journey for UNESCO. They, they need to see the area being secured, people remain safe without any, any further, uh, further looting of their properties and killing of innocent lives. Repeated calls to the spokesperson of UNESCO went unanswered. On Monday, the Security Council reiterated its call to Sudan and South Sudan to ensure their BI area is demilitarized, including all armed elements in the local communities. 
It called on both governments to facilitate the smooth functioning of all UNESCO bases and joint border verification team sites in accordance with their primary responsibility as host states and the status of forces agreements. For VOA News, Amanyang David Mayor in Juba. Some South Sudanese refugees in the Sudanese capital Khartoum are calling on officials from the Kiri administration to visit their camps and see the conditions of refugees. Chief Kol Akech says when South Sudanese officials visit Sudan, none of them care to reach the camps in Khartoum hosting South Sudanese refugees. For VOA News, Viola Elias reports from Juba. Some South Sudanese refugees in Khartoum describe their living conditions in calm as dreadful. Traditional chief Akola Kech, who lives in one of the South Sudanese refugees' community in Khartoum, says he wonders why South Sudan officials visit Khartoum but fail to visit their people in the camps. He says South Sudanese refugees wants to learn from key administration officials what progress has been made in implementing the revitalized peace deal. Akech says the South Sudanese living in the refugees' camps were once part of the country's struggle for freedom. We have contributed to the liberation of our country. We know that government officials usually come here, but they don't want to meet with us. We hear about South Sudan's peace progress from people around us, but not for officials. They don't want to meet us because they know that we have needs and demands. Refugee Tongluol says many South Sudanese refugees, children linger in the streets due to a lack of schools for them in Khartoum. Lowell says Sudan's main prisons are filled with South Sudanese children arrested for committing virus crimes in the camps. South Sudan, you need a lot of things to do for us. If they have a power, you should have to migrate her to, to return her back in order to go and stay there in Southern Sudan. Because the situation of Sudan, they have become very worse. Because we cannot able to pay the school fees for the children. And we don't have the power, even all the things, for hospital and for a living and for all the food, everything. South Sudanese refugee William Deng says since South Sudan declared its independence, most citizens have not seen any benefit from being an independent country. Deng says women, children and the elderly continue to suffer in the camps. He says all he wants is for the South Sudan government to provide returning refugees with land since most residents who fled the country lost their homes during the conflict. Right now, they don't have any land, and if the government decides to take people back home, meaning they should be given plots. Joyce Dudu, a CAM leader and midwife at Mandela CAM in Sudan, says there are no maternity centers to help pregnant women during childbirth. Dudu says she often helps pregnant women deliver in her small heart. 
I'm talking about women who gave birth in the camp. Don't have health care centers for maternity. When women want to deliver, they come to me and sometimes I do their delivery in the tent, Rakuba. I am a widow living with my children alone. So I help women in the camp give birth. Sometimes when a case becomes complicated and needs to be transferred to the hospital, I do help and give money on my own to take them to the hospital. Adult Nyagong says in Mandela refugee camps, there is no government or NGO that visits the refugees. She says sometimes South Sudanese children are found dead or stabbed and no one investigates the attack. Our children are scattered. They are on the streets. At night you will find some are killed or stabbed and there is no government to stand with us. We inform the NGOs that there is no government visiting us and even when we visit them they don't come to our area Mandela. South Sudan refugee James Akon urges South Sudan to quickly intervene and question the humanitarian agencies responsible for refugees. We need the government of South Sudan to help and ask the international organizations and the UN agencies working in the humanitarian sector, including the High Commission for Refugees Affairs, that they have not done their part towards our Sudanese refugees in Sudan, as it is supposed to be. Akon says refugees from other countries living in Sudan are treated differently, and they often live in the heart of Khartoum. Sudan is one of a number of countries in the region hosting thousands of South Sudanese refugees. The audio used in the story was recorded by South Sudanese who recently visited the camps. For VOA News, I am Viola Elias in Juba. listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Coming up, Sudanese political groups reach an agreement on the way forward. Find out how after the break. What do you think? People speak out on important questions. The question today... What job would you be really bad at and why? If I was to be a doctor, I don't think I would do it well because I'm not actually confident at uh, treating people. But I have that humanity of uh, I can treat someone well, well, but I can't treat you like a patient. I'll be really bad at any job that would tell me what to wear. I'm a person that doesn't like to use tie, especially. So any job that would tell me I have to talk in, I have to use tie, I have to resume by 7 a.m. and all, I'll be bad at that job because it's not part of my ethics. I'm not so good with handling gadgets, electronics, and also I believe I'll be very bad at computer engineering. I wouldn't know how to go about it. I wouldn't know how to fix you know, things here and there. What do you think? A daily discussion of important questions from VOA. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Officials at Sudan's National Antiquities and Museum Corporation are seeking to amend legislation to ensure laws preserve and protect antiquities in the country against looting and destruction. 
The officials say the current law is too weak and does not address crimes such as looting and destruction of antiquities. For VOA News, Michael Atit reports from Khartoum. At an event commemorating World Archaeological Day in Khartoum yesterday, experts presented several papers on the importance of national antiquities in Sudan and said the laws on preserving and protecting antiquities do not adequately address looting or destruction of the ancient remains. Speaking at the sidelines of the event, Galia Jaronebi, Director General of the Sudan National Antiquities and Museum Corporation, says those kinds of crimes have become more prevalent in recent years and should be regarded as a capital crime because they destroy ancient history of the nation. Legislators that govern our antiquities are very weak and can imagine that the punishment for looting or destruction of an archaeological object is not more than three years, even if the person has destroyed a pyramid. This is a capital crime and needs to be seriously punishable. You cannot loot the history of the whole nation when you go unpunished. In 2020, illegal gold diggers destroyed a 2,000-year-old archaeological site in Sudan's eastern region of the Sahara Desert. Ikhlas Abdul Latif, who heads the unit in charge of monitoring looted antiquities at the Sudan National Museum, says people target archaeological sites because they contain valuable minerals such as gold, which thieves sell in the market. Abdul Latif says this year's commemoration of World Archaeological Day was aimed at raising awareness about the importance of protecting archaeological sites. The role of the department that monitors the looted antiquities, its achievements and its objectives. Both Abdul Latif and Jaranebi called on Sudanese authorities to amend laws to ensure that the cultural heritage of the nation is protected. George Papaganis, the UNESCO representative in Sudan, expressed deep concern over the looting of antiquities and trafficking of cultural objects around the world, including those from Sudan. When objects are taken and trafficked illegally on the international market, it is not only a crime, but it is a setback for our understanding about our history and why it is important for us to stop this because the continuity of history is about these pieces, these parts of our our antiquity that when assembled together, they are the pieces of the puzzle that give us a picture not only of the the past, but they inform the present and will give us guidance in terms of how we get into the future. Sudan is home to hundreds of pyramids and other ancient sites, although they are not as well known as those in northern neighboring Egypt. For VOA News, I am Michael Atit in Khartoum. Still in Sudan, Forces of Freedom and Change Coalition said it has reached a framework agreement with the military to end the country's political deadlock since an October 2021 coup. Sources from the three coalition told Reuters a second stage of talks to be launched will discuss four topics, which are transitional justice, dismantling the Bashir regime, security sector reforms, and the Juba Peace Agreement. The Center for 
Mine Body Medicine is exploring ways to expand its programs to South Sudanese. The U.S. nonprofit, headed by Dr. James Gordon, a psychiatrist and a clinical professor at Georgetown University Medical School, has worked in several hotspots across the world holding trauma workshops. Anget Diawol is one of the trainers for the group in South Sudan who has been working with community leaders to co-create trauma relief and resilience building programs that are responsive to the community's unique experiences in South Sudan. Everyone in South Sudan is traumatized, but because of our specific history of conflict, of displacement, of famine, disease, all of these really make trauma very, very close to many people. We're always expecting bad news. We're always expecting to hear, you know, conflict or fighting in different parts of the country. And indeed, this is what is happening. And then now we have, of course, COVID, the effects, especially the economic effects of that, and then flooding, you know, so, so the trauma keeps coming. So the situation is really difficult, but it's also, I think, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it means that people are traumatized. It's not a negative thing. It's a, it's a human thing, you know? So it's human to feel the stress that we may feel when bad things happen. Talk to me about your efforts, you know, in South Sudan. It's my understanding that you are also heavily involved, you know, training people who will be going out there to heal others. So I was trained by the Center for Mind-Body Medicine from 2016. And I'm coming actually from a, from a human rights background. That's, 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 I'm a human rights lawyer. So I came to South Sudan really seeing a lot of the things that people are experiencing due to conflict, due, due, due to uh, displacement, due to community violence. And it became very, very important for me to deal with my own trauma. And it became also important for me to be able to help the people that I'm trying to talk to. You know, so trauma for me always sort of got in the way. You know, so when I began to understand the role of trauma, it became very evident to me that a lot of the work that we're doing is not really being successful because trauma is is there. So I'm working with many different people from different communities, you know, whether it's a military hospital, Juba teaching hospital, working with civil society, trying to target um, people working with women, survivor groups, um, youth groups, basically trying to get them to be trained as I was trained so that they can reach their community and use this model. And this model is very simple. You know, it may sound complicated. And, you know, most people think about trauma as therapy, sitting with a therapist and talking for an hour and coming back next week you know, but this is very different. You know, we work in a group model, so we're able to reach many people at the same time. Trauma is an embedded memory of something that has happened to you in life. One example, if you meet a South Sudanese and you make a joke, some people don't take it positively. It triggers the old memory. Or for instance, if you say, oh, everybody in South Sudan likes fighting. Of course, it's a blanket statement. Some people's reaction to that blanket statement is different. Others will say, no, that's not true. Others will start fighting. So to me, the, you know, the prevalence of trauma has affected the society negatively as opposed to positively. 
Do you agree with that assessment? Yes, I do. I do. Um, when you don't deal with trauma, uh, what happens is you see things through a certain lens. You know, so if you've experienced trauma and triggers take you to that traumatic place, you know, in your memory, you know, some people tend to be, for example, maybe very sad and depressive. Other people may get withdrawn. Other people may get aggressive and angry. So this is where we're seeing people responding immediately after they hear something. Um, it's not to say that, you know, trauma is negative. It's, it really is an invitation for people to explore why, you know, something is triggering. And it could be a very obvious thing that I'm saying. You know, um, we've all experienced a lot of a lot of things. You know, for example, for me, um, for me, trauma is, you know, hearing hearing about loss, and it reminds me of the losses that I've experienced in in South Sudan and because of conflict within South Sudan. So if I do that, you know, in the past, it would make me very depressed. It would make me very sad. Sometimes it would make me angry, depending on how someone is responding, you know, making, making such a statement. So really the invitation is, you know, to explore what is going on and to understand that there is processing that needs to happen. South Sudan has immense needs for healing, for identifying trauma, and for tackling the issue. How are you handling that situation? It appears like what you're doing is just a drop of water in a desert. You know, it's not exactly a drop of water. I think that, you know, healing has a rippling effect, just as trauma does. You know, in South Sudan, you hear bad news, and depending, you know, the, how, how it is, it could be a neighbor, it could be a family member, it could be, you know, something that happened in a town, it could be something that happened, you know, a big event that ripples everywhere. Trauma also has the same effect. You know, um, <clears throat> the more people learn how to deal with trauma and identify what's going on with themselves and what's going on with someone else and have that empathetic and sympathetic connection, people respond differently also. That's Annette Diawol, one of the trainers for the Center for Mind-Body Medicine in South Sudan. She spoke to me via Skype. That's all we prepared for you this Wednesday. Don't forget to check out voaafrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. I'm your host, John Tanza in Washington. Thanks for taking time to be with us. Remember to join us tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus.